Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, it is a great day. It's a fantastic day because Cole's Wicker's back. Cole, we welcome you with open arms back to the podcast here. How are you doing, buddy? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me back on. It's been a long time, but uh, we'll see if we can get back into the group but just a little bit here. So you released a statement on what's been going on with you over the last year, last night. How much do you want to discuss it? We should probably talk about it on the podcast real quick, just to like let people know what's going on with you. But, um, you know, we, we can go into as much or as little detail as you want. I'll try to take it from like a 30,000 foot view. Just basically made a statement saying from all like the irregular activity on Twitter, having produced content for the step in, obviously haven't been on this podcast and just kind of wanted to explain why. And I got the chance to do that. Just saying that I've been a consultant to the analytics department for the Phoenix Suns for the most of the better part of the last year. So when you see me go off Twitter for two months, that was the reason why. And obviously the reason for me not being on this podcast, at least maybe one of them, maybe you got second me or whatnot, but <laughs> it's within kind of what's been going on. So I just wanted to explain that and it's better just to do it all in one place. So there's a, a post on the step in, obviously you don't need to go visit that now because you know it here. Um, and that's basically it. Yeah. So the good news obviously is that everything is okay with you. I can't emphasize enough how many people <laughs> I had reaching out to me. Like, is Cole okay? Like, is he fine? I, I like obviously didn't want to tell them like what was going on with you. Uh, so I was like, yes, everything is very positive. It's all, it's all good news. <laughs> yeah. Some people thought I was in dire straits. That was kind of interesting. Some people assume this was the reason. So uh, now there's actually clarity on that. I, I felt kind of bad for people having to answer questions on my behalf. That's why I, I thought initially it'd be better if I could just remove all the questions from the process and kind of go off Twitter for a while. And then people started getting questions again, you mainly. And even last night, people were asking me, you know, does this mean you're still with the Suns or not? People were kind of, I guess, uncertain about the message. And I am not with the Suns anymore. So that's uh, definitely the point of clarity. And I also do want to be real clear on this one, too. So I just wrote about the Suns last Friday. And some people decided to uh, maddeningly misrepresent <laughs> what I actually wrote. Basically, aggregators. Uh, you guys know who who did it. Um, just want to note, none of that info came from Cole. Was want to be very clear about this. I, I do not talk to Cole about the Phoenix Suns because it is, uh, you know, Cole and I are actually friends, and I don't want to put him in that position to wear. So just want to you know throw that little nugget out there for people. <laughs> That really blew up too, man. That's everywhere as far as the different sites and stuff. But yeah, we have not discussed, you know, Suns. And I, I think I can credibly say that just because I have friends in the Phoenix media, like Kellen Olson, for example, and they had no idea this was happening. So definitely haven't talked to anybody about this, and I won't do that. So I think I've had some people, you know, DM me and ask about the situation, ask if I can go talk about that role, and I'm not going to do that, just to be clear. Yeah, it's just not something you should get involved with realistically nope. like i think that it's smart for you to just kind of sit back maybe and let this uh let this i'm not i'm not gonna have you say this but let this dumpster fire just continue for a little while <laughs> just just let this go with the suns um let's talk about something that is absolutely not a dumpster fire uh damian lillard last night oh boy so i was out with some friends uh like i had a few friends from carnegie mellon that wanted to get together so went to this bar in hollywood and then we walked down the street to this 
like Game of Thrones themed bar, which is typically actually a like Star Wars themed bar, but they converted it, I guess, for like the next five weeks or whatever to a Game of Thrones bar. And while this game is happening, I have no idea what's going on. And then I get home at like 12 o'clock and I see, holy shit, Damian Lillard just hit a 35 footer from three to end the Oklahoma City season and then waved goodbye to them like what was this like for you watching it live because I would imagine that you were actually paying attention to this yeah I actually watched the last like five minutes of this game live of course there's four games yesterday so I was trying to go through on DVR and finally I was like screw it I don't want this to be ruined to the last second so I got over there it was unreal. And my first thought was like, this is the ultimate Mike Breen double bang moment, like of all time, just to win the series with a 37 footer to the right. It was it was unreal, man. That's like why we watched the game is that shot. I think everybody just freaked out and it was incredible. It, the shot, there's a lot of backlash. It was it a bad shot. Was it not? I mean, I know that that stat is circulating around with Damian hitting like 10 of 18 threes from like 30 feet in this series it's not a bad shot for him it was just a hell of a moment man like Calabro was freaking out I, I it was fun to listen to back to the different iterations of who was calling it both on the radio local broadcast and national broadcast as a Sonics guy for example Calabro was awesome so I would highly encourage people to check that out if they haven't just the different calls of that of that play because it was an unreal yeah like I think that's actually a really good example um of is this a good shot or a bad bad shot like Damian Lillard after the game mentioned that like this is something that you know he had a workout with his trainer Phil Beckner and you know Phil just said during the workout hey let's you know maybe get a couple of shots off from this distance like you know you never know what's going to happen you might need this at some point and you know like this is why you do that stuff like this is why Damian Lillard is Damian Lillard like he is consistently training for every single possible event and he's consistently training based off of the way that defenders even try and defend him right it's just the the will to win in him and the emotional intelligence of deciding to sit down and really try and figure out everything that's going on in defenders and then just like the fucking brazen confidence right like you know, Damian Lillard inviting Chris Haynes over to his house and saying, <laughs> I'm going to end these motherfuckers uh, tomorrow. Like, that that stuff's awesome. Like, I, I'm here for that. Like, it's just the best combination of every single personality trait and skill set that I want in a basketball player. Yeah, I think the mental approach side is fantastic. I mean, the confidence is to take that shot in that moment and basically, like, I'm going to end you. I'm going to end this series. A lot of guys won't do that. And, I mean, Damian's been unfucking believable on the series man he's 23 of 47 on pull-ups in the half court 68.1 adjusted field goal percentage he's just completely morphed the floor like his his gravity opens up opportunities for teammates like what's happened with steven steven adams we'll get into this a little bit with talking about bigs and what damian lillard did to that coverage and what he did to the rest of that team opening up again opportunities for himself and for his teammates just unreal and it kind of culminated in that shot last night which is just you you don't see that shot i mean we saw the thing against chandler parsons a while back those buzzer beaters those real buzzer beaters to win series like rarely ever happens that was one of like one of the most awesome shot making moments we've had in a long time yeah shout out good friend of the program phil beckner also for just being (laughs) awesome phil is just the greatest dude um so the next thing we wanted to talk about beyond well no i actually want to go here next like So last night I tweeted, I think Damian Lillard might be like a top five player in the league. I think that like, you know, I was four beers deep or whatever and (laughs) was not, was not maybe a hundred percent 
in on that as I tweeted it. But then I thought about it, and I think that I would have Dame at seven right now. I think that that is the number. So, like, I wasn't far off on five. So the, the guys that I came up with ahead of him were LeBron, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, Giannis, Stephen Curry, and James Harden. I think I would have Dame next on that list. Where do you think if you had to like throw out a number, like a, you know, just off the top of your head, what what would you think of where you would have Dane? I would say top 10 overall, just with the consistency he's had this year. And I think you're going to argue higher, like around the range you have him just based on the playoffs. Like obviously right now, the way he's playing, you can argue even higher than top five. He's been one of the best players, if not the best player in the playoffs. It's been unreal. So I think he has been the best player in the playoffs so far. It's a five game sample, but like, I think he's been the best player in the playoffs. Right. And I think there is a difference again between regular season value and playoff value. Some of the bigs are going to lose a little bit of value in the playoffs that might push Dame up, even though a guy like Giannis isn't going to. And that's one of the bigs that's ahead of him. I go between Dame and Kyrie personally. I, I think it's really tough because Kyrie's shot making is just all time in the playoffs. We've seen that over and over again. Like he's just yeah. proven it. He can get a shot at any period. Dame has more range. Kyrie has more functionality on his jump shot, in my opinion. But the way Dame's playing, to make 10 of 18 threes in a game, it's just like he, the level of shot making of these elite shot makers, James Harden, of course, Steph Curry. You can make an argument for any of them. I would still take Steph one, James Harden two. I go back and forth between Kyrie and Dame. But I think those two with Steph are the top three point guards in the league right now. Yeah, and like you can say Harden, like is he a point guard? Is he not a point guard, right? Like he has Chris Paul playing next to him. He's certainly elite uh, at least. Yeah, just let me let me interject really quick. That was a great point. I, I and I would consider James Harden a lead guard. I, you just can't call him a shooting guard based on functionality of his role. He's as much of a lead guard as anybody in history. So right. I would definitely include him in that, and I would have him just after Steph. So it would be those four guys. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that if we're calling James Harden a lead, I would have Lillard ahead of Kyrie, like, Certainly, just because I think that the ability to make shots and honestly, like, like I don't want to talk shit about Kyrie, but there is just that intangible leadership with Lillard that I don't think Kyrie yes. has. Um, and I think that's the difference maker. Like skill wise, like maybe we can say they're pretty darn close to even. Um, but like that intangible leadership factor for me that Lillard just very clearly has that that's the thing that pushes it over the top for me. The guys that I got the most pushback on were Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic and Anthony Davis uh, in terms of like, are these three guys better than Damian Lillard? So if you're starting a team. I can see you making a case for Anthony Davis and, you know, if you're saying like, you know, without potential for injuries, you know, I can see you saying Joel Embiid, like I can see you saying Nikola Jokic. But for me, if I have to win one basketball game, like I am definitely taking Damian Lillard over all three of those guys. Like that's the guy that I want on my side even more than those other guys, especially just because the drop off from Dame to like an average level point guard is much steeper than the drop-off from even Joel, who is, you know, either Joel or Anthony Davis, who I think are the two best centers in the NBA, to a, like, league average center. Like, Steven Adams right now, Steven Adams is really fucking good. He might be a league average center. 
Yep, 100%. And I think this goes to being a dependent player versus not. Damien's not a dependent player. He's the one that's initiating the action. That's always going to have value because you cannot take these guys away anymore. You can't take away their shot making off the dribble. If you if you just outright trap him, of course, you can mitigate some, but then you have a four and three advantage situation. The entire point of basketball is to create advantage situations. And in the playoffs, when you have these unbelievable perimeter shot makers, like those guys are the hardest to take away. It's impossible to take away hard and step back completely. So I, I get that argument, especially compared to bigs, because again, Anthony Davis is fantastic. In my opinion, Giannis is the best le- big in the league, followed by Anthony Davis. But he still is dependent on someone getting him the ball on his spots to, to an extent. Like Jokic is a little different because he kind of initiates their sets, but he's taking something off the table that's integral in that space defense. Joel, same thing. He struggles to get out on these pick-and-pop bigs. He's also dependent. He's not this perimeter high-level shot maker. So it just comes to playoff value a little bit, too. And, and these primary initiator types of players that really are high-level shooters are just the most consistent to me. They're the most consistent part of playoff basketball. Like that's the hardest thing to take away. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that, and I think that that's where I'm. That's where I'm at with Dame. Like, and by the way, I was like not a fan of Dame. Like as of twenty, because what he came into the league in twenty eleven. Does that sound right? Twenty twelve. I think it's twenty twelve. Like up until like twenty sixteen, even realistically, like I was not like this huge Damian Lillard fan. Like I actually thought he was kind of overrated, to be honest. And I was incredibly wrong about that. Like just to be honest about it, like you could just realistically say that, you know, I think Bill Simmons tweeted, like he's one of the five best guards of the decade. I think that's right. Like he is, he has lived up to it and he keeps getting better, obviously too. Like that's the big thing. Like the 2016, 17 season, he just took like such a ridiculous, ridiculous leap I thought even the 2015-16 season as well like he just took such a ridiculous leap that I mean the guy is just just a special dude I think uh you know I'm I'm very glad that I jumped on board uh with Damian Lillard train just because that dude is that dude is as fun to watch as anyone in the league yeah and the leadership point you made is definitely germane to this conversation and I don't like to go in too much to that because I don't have the specifics the inside information and stuff but everything you hear out of Portland is like this guy is the real deal as far as leadership so if that's a separating factor with him and Kyrie I totally understand that and I think to your point about him improving he really has I thought he defended Westbrook really well in this series he really tried on defense and like yeah. Kyrie's tried more so like that that matters like that little marginal gains you get from him really applying his athleticism because he's big he's, he's a little bit bigger than he gets credit for as far as strength goes and like yep. frame and he really was engaged in that series and i thought he's he's improved that as a passer i don't think he's a high level passer i think he misses some reads not like highly anticipatory but again he's mostly drawing two guys and that's the most valuable thing you can do in the game is if you can draw an extra defender and if you can create an advantage situation for you yourself and your teammates that's incredibly valuable but it's, it's even just like the little stuff in regard to leadership, too. Like, he goes, so I was at Hoop Summit, right? And for people who don't know, a lot of the Hoop Summit practices are just at the Portland Trailblazers practice gym, right? Yep. And, like, Damian Lillard, there's no reason for Damian Lillard to just, like, hang out and be there for Hoop Summit. Like, you know, after practice ends, after he gets treatment and stuff, like, there's every... Uh, every reason for him to go home, but he doesn't go home. He comes and hangs out like, 
he says hello to everyone in their front office that he sees just like in the corner. Like he just goes off and makes sure that, you know, he makes everyone feel appreciated. And then, so Joel Freeland, who was, you know, a former first round pick of the Portland trailblazers from the United kingdom happened to randomly be in town and was on the opposite end of the gym. And like one of the blazers executives is like, yeah, like Joel's here. Like you should go over and say hi. And he's like, Oh, Joel's here. And he like runs over to Joel and just like gives him like this big hug, like gives him, uh, daps him up like real quick. Like he's excited to see him. Like it's just even that little stuff. It's not even necessarily the, um, like the on court stuff, which that stuff matters too. It does, but it's the way that he carries himself is the leader of an organization off the court that I think is important too. Yeah. A hundred percent. I can't add anything to that. Um, let's move on. So we wanted to talk about just generally the playoffs in this episode. We'll do a little bit of draft stuff at some point, but uh, more than anything, I've been having conversations with people about like, how do we think that this playoffs, which I think has been a little bit different than other playoffs, just in the way that teams are seemingly specifically scheming against other teams. Like obviously that happens during the playoffs every year, but it seems to be happening to a more substantial extent this year. For me, would you say that that's true? Like, maybe I'm not explaining it right, but like, it feels like teams are more than ever really just hammering the weaknesses of the opposing team. It does feel like that. I think some of that's the part that I think I understand the game better now than I did a year ago or even six months ago. So you notice more of the little that's intricacies. True. But but some of the obvious strategies, like especially, of course, with the whole Harden plan, we've seen that carried out in the regular season by the Bucks, and Utah's trying to install a version of that. That's very specific to personnel, like very, very specific. I'm not sure if we've seen quite to that level. Like the Clippers are top-locking all the Warrior shooters, or at least they started to in the series. They were trying to keep them out from popping out from threes and that opens up back opportunities of course but that that's a little bit more specific but not as specific as like the Harden plan where it's literally just trying to cater a system around one guy's pull up jump shooting gravity which is pretty bizarre before we get into like just the grand scheme of things like what do you think of the Harden strategy because I think it's a fucking nightmare I think you have to execute literally every time the exact right way you can't you can't just let Harden have a straight line drive to the rim the problem is like the Bucks did it really well they also had the personnel they had Giannis they had Bledsoe who can really get around picks he's very athletic so we can apply back pressure with his strength to Harden because you're trying to force him into a floater that's kind of what the scheme is you have to have a big dropping back at the rim and he's kind of guarding two guys at times he's guarding the lob threat in Capella and he's guarding Harden on the attack Gobert keeps stepping up on a lot of these possessions and when he steps up you just let Capella slip in behind you for a lob you can't give up lob dunks to Capella that's not the point of this you know what I mean so that's why you have to execute so relentlessly to get it right and Utah was blowing rotations like Rubio at times would be the guy on Harden's hip and he would kind of flail out to the strong side corner three sometimes he's a little late doing that sometimes the the weak side gap coverage with Mitchell guarding two guys he's late to recover to the corner shooter so when you exhibit a strategy like this against Harden who makes you pay for literally everything because he's like this is the best part about Harden he's a counter for absolutely everything you do and if you're going to carry out the strategy you better be like on point the entire time and I just think there's been too much variance in how they've kind of a approached it yeah i think that i agree with a lot of that the biggest problem for me is that what milwaukee did really well was because bledsoe is so long and he's really really strong and very very quick obviously and is willing to fight now 
through screens. God, remember a few years ago when Bledsoe like wasn't even really willing to fight through screens and it was just kind of miserable. Like it felt like he was really like struggling with his knees maybe. Um, yeah. and really lost a lot of defensive value, but that has very, very much changed this year. Um, what they did really well is they forced Harden over to the right side of the floor so that whenever they decided to play him on his left hip, they would essentially be just like icing the coverage, right? They would just be downing him into one side of the floor and they would lock him onto one side of the floor, right? Yep. With what Utah is doing, Utah is just playing like top side, left side coverage all over the floor. And when you do that on the left side of the floor or the middle of the floor, it just creates a fucking wide open lane into the middle of the ground. God, I'm like swearing a lot in this podcast, but like this, this (laughs) this defensive strategy, like genuinely frustrated me to an extent that I can't really remember. Well, and you have to maintain such discipline on the ball, like guarding Harden at the certain parts of the floor. Like Bledsoe was very good about staying, like basically facing the sideline and taking away at all costs that pull up and that step back. Like you're still seeing Harden get that step back off over Rubio at times or Royce O'Neal when they play in front of him. And that's not the scheme. So like if you're going to operate that scheme, you got to do it consistently. I just think that it's 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 all tasks. It's not like it's easy. There's a reason that Harden's this good. And right. I, I just don't know if it's the right strategy to really carry out. But it's tough because at the same time, like are you just going to let Harden take these step back threes. I mean, he's shooting it at a ridiculous rate. So it's kind of like it's a lose lose. This is kind of the theme of the playoffs so far is like some of the elite offensive players. I just don't know if you can take their games away completely. It's that, and that's what makes them great. But here's the other thing, though, with playing that, uh, you know, you play that left side coverage like this. Harden is better getting to his like sidestep step back going to the right and then getting up to his left. Now, maybe you can make the case that if you're on his left side, you can bother the ball as he brings it up like toward the middle. But I just think that he's getting too much separation on that step back. Like I know that the numbers don't really line up with this yet necessarily, but I don't think it's because Utah is bothering him. I think it's just like kind of variance to be honest. Yeah, and that's definitely fair. I think another part of forcing him right is it's harder to make that cross-court pass with his right hand. He's not that that's adept a really at that good pass. Point. And with the left hand, he just lasers that thing, man. <laughs> like if you, if you force him to the left, he's going to whip that across. So maybe that's their line of thought. But I think you have to even apply more ball pressure. Like with Bledsoe, with Milwaukee, for example, he could kind of stick on, at least on his back hip, and make that cross-court pass a little bit more challenging with his length. And it, like you said, I think certain times with Utah, Harden's just getting so much separation that he can just throw that pass anyway with both hands and that's an ideal you can't give up a corner three and we've seen you know like houston at times is downsides they put tucker at the five and spaced him out to the corner so go bears kind of had to guard him on the weak side or i guess the strong side with how they're running it it's just a nightmare man it's just <laughs> you have to have such great personnel and utah these are smart guys like that's the thing about utah is like rubio's a really smart player so is goberry he's one of the smartest interior defenders we've seen and they're still making mistakes and that just goes to like they're not used to doing this yeah no that's 100 percent right and they i think that that is what happened in like games one and two they eventually stopped in game two like running this just because it felt like they got like down like this is a top three defense in the nba and Quinn Snyder is asking them to like totally go away from what got them there. I feel like there is a mental effect to doing that. Like there, there is something to saying, Hey, what got us here isn't good enough. Like that's kind of how it feels, right? Yeah. A little bit. I just, you could also approach it as they're like, okay, our, the reason we 
we're here defensively is because of Gobert. He is the most impactful regular season defender. So what do we want to do with Harden? We want to make him drive into Gobert instead of all these pull-ups where Gobert can't affect the play. But the problem with that is like you can't let Harden make the, the kickout passes. You have to make him shoot a floater over Gobert. That's the whole point of this. And if he's not going to do that, then Gobert is also not maintaining a ton of value because you're just giving Harden, you know, downhill opportunities and playmaking opportunities. So it's a very complicated situation, but maybe that's how they're approaching it. It's just like we don't want to live with our best defensive player unable to affect these Harden pull-ups. If you switch Gobert onto Harden, Harden's going to be able to get where he wants on the floor. And I think maybe that's their line of thinking. I, I don't really know. So let's just kind of transition into like the center discussion, right? Just in a takeaway on team building, right? Like I think Utah has figured out at least a more reasonable way to do this. Um, basically when Harden gets by them, they're just playing like super, super trail coverage, essentially like on his backside and then having Rudy come up forward and contesting like right around the like six to eight foot range and just basically like sandwiching Harden and trying to make him feel crowded, right. And making it a little bit more difficult for him to make passes. I like that a little bit more than what they were doing. Just like it's like a small tweak, but it's like something that I like a little bit more than what they were doing early on. The second thing, though, is that the Jazz at some point are going to have to make a decision on Rudy Gobert. Like Rudy Gobert is making, I want to say, twenty-five million right now a year, something along those lines. Uh, his contract runs out in twenty twenty-one. Rudy Gobert is obviously the best defensive player, the best impact defender in the regular season in the NBA. What do you do? Do you continue to pay him upwards of $32 million a year, $34 million a year by the time the cap rises to get up to 2021? Or do you decide maybe it's time to move on? Like, I feel like Rudy is such an impactful player that you can't just move on without it totally rocking the chemistry of your team. But also... I do wonder if there are diminishing returns to paying a guy like that $32 million a year. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. And something to bring up with Utah, we talk a lot about their defensive scheme, but really in this series, they haven't been able to score well enough. And that was the case last year in the playoffs where Houston would switch and they wouldn't have enough creation. And like Gobert, yeah, he can hurt you on the offensive glass. He's really good. He's an excellent screener. So there was some talk about him being a top 10 offensive player in the league earlier this year. And that's absolutely insane um, yeah, you have but, to be able to create your own shot to be a top honestly like 25 player in the nba offensively right like i think rudy is valuable i think he legitimately puts pressure on the rim uh he's a very good offensive rebounder he's an elite level screener but you have to be able to create your own shot otherwise you're playing a complementary role versus a primary role it's just hard to get it back on offense when you are a ducking guy when you're a lob threat in the playoffs because it doesn't stress defenses what stresses defense is space it's the pull-up threats it's the guys who can pick and pop that's why i prioritize those two skills in the draft like bigs who can shoot if gobert could shoot a three this would be a different conversation because he's not only opening up higher value opportunities opportunities he's spacing the defense he's helping your offense in indirect ways but if he's just a lob threat and a guy where frankly they can switch chris paul onto and paul can just fight his legs and they're not going to probably post him up like you're just not going to be able to get it back on that end if you can't defend in space and you're giving up higher value opportunities in the other end so that's something i took away from this playoffs and that ties to a steven adams at times to an andre drummond who Drummond can't threaten the Bucks scheme. What they want to do is over and drop you. They force with Bledsoe. They force you to take these mid-range shots, and they filter 
their everything right at the rim towards Lopez. And, you know, with Thon Maker on the floor, Giannis can sag down in the paint. They protect the rim really well. If they had Marcus Sol, who could pick and pop, that changes and alters the scheme of the defense. So I think that's another takeaway for me is just the value of shooting at the five. And if you can get shooting gravity, that's obviously the big thing because the, the guys in the playoffs, teams in the playoffs, they're going to live with your weak points. So if you want to have Thon Maker, Jack Threes, the Bucs are going to let you do that. But if you're Marcus Sol and you shoot 36%, you're going to have a little bit more gravity there. So that's how you get it back, in my opinion, is you shoot threes, you open up opportunities for teammates, and Gobert doesn't do that. So in regard to building a team now, are you at the stage where you just aren't drafting centers that can't shoot unless the, like you think of them as backups and if they're backup centers, you probably should just be paying them the minimum anyway? I don't think I'm quite that far. Um, obviously, like, a guy like Siakam, for example, it wasn't clear if he could shoot, right? But he is versatile on defense. So there right. is safety in that. You can, get, you can give him minutes there and that kind of versatility overall is valuable. Like when Horford came into the league, are we sure he could shoot? I don't think so. I think you have to invest in guys that have versatility, though. I think that's critical. If you are a, let's say you're not like a dynamic pick and pop threat, you're just a guy like maybe like Steven Adams and you come into the league, I think you devalue that guy a little bit in the playoffs because he just, he's not going to pick and pop. He's not going to have that defensive versatility. If you don't have those two things, I think I'm going to devalue a little bit. And that's kind of how I've operated in the drafts, at least last year, was I prioritized that guy. That's why I like Jaron Jackson so much because I felt like situationally he was really safe as far as scheme. So here's a here's the question then. Would you draft any center that you feel like can't guard on the perimeter, except if you think of him as a backup? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Someone like Goga, for example, I think can pick and pop, and I think he's going to be okay. He can put the ball on the floor a little bit, but you're very, very... <laughs> concerned about his ability to defend on the perimeter even though he's yeah, a like there, and roll defender there are people out there who think like goja is going to be able to like actually defend screen and roll in the nba and i think that's kind of uh it's a little, i don't say it's crazy but like it's very uh aspirational let's call it an aspirational skill that seems like a better more positive spin on the matter because while his feet have gotten better like i will i will wholly admit that whereas like when Goja was, let's say two years ago, um, Goja Pichadze was this like slow-footed guy. He has improved that dramatically. He's not that anymore. Like He can actually move his feet a little bit, but it's a different beast whenever you stretch out the guy having to guard at the 30-foot mark as opposed to where most european offenses initiate like at the 23 foot mark and you just have a lot less help out there and then additionally uh you're just dealing with guards that are just so much faster just so so much faster yeah and i think from what i've seen of his tape he's really really good in drop coverage like very good at maintaining positioning ball and man that's going to be valuable especially in the regular season but that's going to have a limit in the playoffs because guys are going to hunt him on these dynamic perimeter creators are going to hunt him in mismatches. And it doesn't even matter about pick and roll as much because it's going to alter the scheme. He's going to have to come out eventually, like all these guys. Like, you see Steven Adams, he was outside the three-point line guarding Damian Lillard, double high pick and roll. So is the other Thunder big because you have to respect that gravity threat. So that's going to happen eventually. It's like Marcus Gasol. I think Marcus Gasol is an incredible basketball player. He's kind of the archetype of this where he can pick and pop make high level decisions he's outstanding in drop coverage or pick and roll but he's going to come across a matchup eventually with a dynamic guard like if they played you know Kyrie Irving for example like that would be a really complex matchup for him and that's what you're going to encounter in the playoffs and it's a calculating balance where these players are really good but they are at the very highest levels of play like say the top four teams in the league you're going to run into a matchup that exposes them yeah, no, that's that's 100% right. And 
you know, on some level, I think that there is value in being just a good basketball team, right? And like getting a guy that is, you know, is Steven Adams. Like Steven Adams helps you win regular season games. He's a good basketball player. We're not disagreeing with that fact. It's just how much do you want to actually pay that guy in the grand scheme of things? Like, I I don't know that I want to pay Steven Adams $20 million a year whenever I can pay Thomas Bryant $1 million a year. Yeah, it's a great point. And you you see games four and five. Adams didn't even close the game either time. In game five, uh, Oklahoma City came out. Adams was guarding Mo Harkless in that game. He wasn't even guarding Canner anymore because of the the threat of Damian Lillard's pull-up. So that's what we see. By the way, that's exactly why Ennis Cantor had a great series because Ennis Cantor is one of the best offensive rebounders in the league. And if you feel like you can't have Steven Adams in pick and roll coverage, then you're just going to have a smaller guy on Ennis Cantor and he's going to fucking wreck the offensive glass. Yeah, and you could see Oklahoma City was willing to live with these Mo Harkless corner threes, and that was the cost of doing business with Damian Lillard, was you had to put Steven Adams somewhere else. They were off-ball switching Adams at times, too, just to keep him away from the point of attack, and that's what you're going to have to deal with. And that's why there are diminishing returns to centers like that who, again, can't defend well enough in space. They're not versatile enough. That's where the safety is, is the versatility defensively. If the player can shoot, that's awesome. I mean, that's that's those are the guys, to me, you invest in, at a high at a high amount, but not a lot of guys are surefire bets to suit. So sometimes you got to take shots on some uncertain shooters with touch, for example. But I do think there's still value in a pick and pop big who can be a mismatch beater. That's critical. If you if you're just Chang Fry, for example, and you can switch a small onto you and not make him pay in any capacity, that's troubling because that dictates that dictates scheme as well. It's not just about execution; it's about the gravity you're applying to the other team and and trying to stress the other team out. Well, here's the other crazy thing about it. Too. Like, I remember Purdue when Caleb Swanigan was there. They used to essentially like cross match on screens. Like, if they would see Caleb's guy going up to set a screen for a ball handler, they would like Caleb would call it out and they would have a wing essentially fly up and try and guard the ball screen. And then they'd have Caleb slide to the right or slide to the left, wherever the guy was coming from and just switch onto the corner. I wonder if we start seeing it's a lot harder on the NBA level, just because it is difficult to do that in space in the greater space that is the NBA. But I wonder if we start to see teams with centers start to do that more, start to yell out cross matches on ball screens and start to get more athletic wing like defenders on on uh, on in pick and roll coverages, basically. Yeah, no, it's it's a great point. I think we already have seen it. It's just harder. Like you said, it's harder to pull off in the NBA level because they can just isolate the player. On so hard or like yeah. that. We've seen Teams try to avoid LeBron doing this, and he always finds you because they'll just put the guy who the big's guarding on one side of the floor and everybody else on the other side of the floor, and then they'll make you make a decision with those two guys. So they're not going to give you the opportunity to switch on the same side of the floor. So that's what makes like the pace and space, all this space era, really hard to guard is because they also, the guys with the ball dictate the matchups too. And it's really hard to fight against that because, again, if you want to run somebody from the other side of the floor to like double or something, the teams are going to make you pay for that in some capacity if they had the requisite shooting, of course, and the requisite surrounding talent. So it's just a really tough charge. Uh, the other thing that is interesting so far about the playoffs to like move away from bigs is just the pressure that, and this is something you and I talk about all the time, just the pressure that guards who can shoot on the ball and knock down pull-ups put on a defense. 
Uh, like for instance, we see Damian Lillard just be unstoppable. Stephen Curry is unstoppable. James Harden, the Jazz are trying to literally devise a defensive scheme that they haven't <laughs> run all year because they feel like they have to find a way to stop him. Does this affect any way that you go about trying to draft? Because realistically, unless like a weird ass situation like Oklahoma City with James Harden pops up, you have to get these guys in the draft. It's not like you can sign these elite level uh, pull up shooters anywhere else. You basically have to get them from the draft. I mean, does this affect things for you in the way that you value like someone like Darius Garland? for instance, who is uh, just an unbelievable pull-up shooter and has some very real questions about his defense, about his distribution skills, about you know his body holding up long-term just because he's so skinny and now has the meniscus injury. Like, Does the fact that the pull-up shot has become such a lethal weapon for on-ball players change the calculus in regard to how you look at these guys? For me personally, no, because I was already incorporating it. This is something that I've yeah. kind of been touching on for like two or three years. Yeah. It's like the you gravity and I talk about this up. like all the time, but yeah, it's still like it, there. I feel like yeah, for sure. I think people are coming around to just the pull up three specifically, and it doesn't have to be the same caliber shot. So James Harden uses the step back. Uh, like in the draft last year, Luca had that step back, and I, I didn't think that got enough pub. Frankly, even yep. in draft time, it was like a guy eighteen who already has that move is. It's pretty ridiculous. You can't take that away. Uh, Trey Young with the range. That was a huge issue with me as far as projecting him was, you know, he can shoot from 30 feet and he puts pressure on you right when he crosses half court. I thought the the best part about the Portland series playing OKC is you just got the dichotomy between what Damian Lillard causes and what Russell Westbrook causes. Like Damian was coming across half court with two double high stagger screens and both Thunder bigs were out of the paint. And for Russell Westbrook, the screen was set below the three point line. And there's just no spacing. There's no applied pressure from 35 feet out. So if you could do that, very valuable, of course. But we have to be kind of careful in saying, okay, Darius Garland's an awesome pull-up shooter. He could be Damian Lillard. Like, that's like it, it might not work out that way, right? <laughs> I mean, there's definitely differences. There's subtle differences. I mean, Lillard's bigger. He's stronger. He's a better downhill speed athlete. He can get to the rim and just blow by guys. Garland's probably a little shiftier east-west. Good handle, good pick and roll guy. Hasn't gotten the chance to run pick and roll that much. He kind of came yep. up as an off guard. He doesn't have Damian Lillard's four years of college experience. So I think that's a little bit of an example of maybe people chasing a skill that is so obvious now. Like everybody can see Damian Lillard. It's like, oh, we got to go get that guy. But you don't yep. realize what specific traits make them so special. It's kind of like what I thought happened last year with Kevin Knox in the top 10. It was like chasing Jason Tatum a little bit. And there were integral yep. differences between those two that would cause that, – that's the entire difference in the value. It's like the unique players that are incredibly good or, or that way for a reason, and it's hard to represent. Yeah, and you know, it's like a weird thing that's happening right now with Cam Reddish, too. Uh, Cam is a guy that I think he's kind of Kevin Knoxie, except he has better handle and better vision, which are not like non-starters, right? Those are actually really important, valuable skills for Cam Reddish to have over Kevin Knox and make him a slightly more valuable prospect, in my opinion. But there are like very real holes in his game that... uh, you know, some people still think of him as like a top five talent. I am more concerned about him now uh, than than I have been in the past. And you know, I've always been a little bit concerned about Cam, but this is a this is a good example of just chasing a chasing an archetype, basically. Yeah, and that's the danger with that whole kind of analysis and player comparisons in general, is because usually it's the subtle differences. Well, sometimes it's the subtle differences that will differentiate a prospect, like Garland getting compared to Trey Young. 
just not even in the same stratosphere as a passer. Like just Trey Rin- yep. wins on the margins better than any small guard I've ever seen as far as drawing fouls, timing, craft, all of that shit. He's just got an elite level, and that's the stuff that makes him special. Like when he wasn't shooting well in November, he was like 19% from three. How did he survive? It was via his playmaking for others. And like what if Garland doesn't shoot? Like I think he's going to, but what if he's not like an elite level shot maker? Like what is he bringing? Because he's not bringing defense, and if he doesn't improve as a – creator for others this is kind of a high variance prospect if, if the ball doesn't yeah, go in he might become like a jamal murray type of player which is good like i'm not going to diss jamal murray he's played much better in the last couple of games but like if he's that kind of player it's really nice but is he a championship level player is he damian lillard no yeah and like it's funny like dame isn't even the world's best uh distributor either he's developed nope. it over time but you know he coming in he wasn't like some immaculate distributor or anything so you're right i think at the end of the day it's just an incredibly high variance prospect that uh gets really tricky and then you throw the health issues in with uh you know darius with the torn meniscus and it gets even more questionable uh the other the other thing to note here though is that while Darius Garland's health is a question, your health does not have to be because one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth, yet most of us don't do it properly. Quip is the better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. Uh, Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. Look, Quip sent me a toothbrush and I haven't stopped using it since they sent it out about a month ago. It is uh, one of the most used things in my household. Like I genuinely brush my teeth more now because of this toothbrush. It is absolutely tremendous. It has sensitive sonic vibrations that are gentle enough on your gums uh, because people brush too hard and some electric toothbrushes are a bit too abrasive. Uh, it has a built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides so that you get a full and even clean. Uh, you know, the brush heads are automatically delivered, uh, you know, on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for $5. Uh, Quip is just absolutely fantastic. I am such a huge fan. Uh, and that's why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Uh, Quip starts at just $25 if you go to getquip.com slash theory. That's T-H-E-O-R-Y. Right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's right. Your first refill pack is free at Get Quip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash theory. So go to getquip.com slash theory. All right, let's move on. We're going to preview some playoff series now. Uh, the one that's set that everyone seems to be excited about is Celtics Bucks, uh, just because it seems like there is a random amount of like shit talking among the fan bases that is happening. <laughs> well, I mean... Going into this series, what what do we think happens here? Because I, I am very intrigued by the idea of Mike Budenholzer tends to play a very certain way, right? Like they do yes. just want to do what they do. They want to play drop coverage. They want to space the floor out around Giannis. They want... Uh, to basically run a lot of one, five pick and roll some four five pick and roll with Giannis and Brooke. Like they want to do uh, what they do. Whereas the Celtics are a lot more variants. They can match up with you in different ways. They can play big. They can play small. I mean, what do we, what do we think about this series going in? Because to me, that's the key matchup. 
what gets the better of this? Is it Brad Stevens' adjustments or is it Mike Budenholzer's system and scheme? I'm just really fascinated by the matchup specifically. We talked about pressure points early in the podcast and guys who can shoot off the dribble and apply pressure that way. Obviously, Kyrie fits the bill there. When they play Horford at five, he really causes a lot of stress on these pick and pops and just facing the floor for like a Lopez type. This is what the Pistons were missing. They just didn't have a guy who could do that. Like Drummond's not going to space the floor. And Horford can also put the ball on the floor and make decisions. We saw that against Embiid in the playoffs last year. Like he got the better of Embiid because of that skill set. So that's kind of why I think the matchup is really interesting just because Boston has strengths in areas that you can exploit the Bucks and might alter the Bucks to go you know, off, off brand and not do the drop coverage. Lopez, maybe they alter their personnel, play Giannis at the five, Miritich at the four. I think we might see a little bit more strategy in this series than a lot of other ones. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting, I think, for a lot of reasons. I mean, what I would say... Uh, is that the Celtics randomly have a lot of guys that can match up with Giannis. Like they have all of these big bodied dudes that they can just throw at him. Like you can even, it's probably not a great idea to throw Jalen Brown at him, but like he is, when he's your third best defender on Giannis, that's a pretty good situation to have, right? Um, you're obviously going to throw out Horford on him. You're going to throw Shimmy Ojale on him for 10 minutes a game, probably just to frustrate him and annoy him and make him deal with a brick wall, like standing in front of him. Uh, it's it's just fascinating. They have so many different guys that they can throw at Giannis and make this a bit more difficult. And they can throw Aaron Baines on him. I mean, that's what a lot of teams do is they play their centers on, on Giannis and their power forward on Lopez to stick with him as a shooter. And they just try to wall off Giannis. We saw that with Aiton earlier in the season. That specific strategy has been, I don't want to say effective because Giannis still gets his, but it's, so, it's something to combat that. I do think the that's an interesting dynamic, though, because if you start Baines, for example, and you get spot minutes, then you're going to have a place to hide Lopez. It's not as damaging as Horford. So if, if um, Lopez can guard Baines, he can probably drop and just incentivize threes. I don't know if you know the Bucks are going to care about Baines shooting. He obviously did well against the Sixers last year, and that's kind of the running joke. But uh, he doesn't stress you the way that Horford does. So I, what I think the Celtics should do is they should start Horford at the five and play Hayward with him at the four and inject that lineup into them. Force Lopez to guard Horford on pick and pops. If he guards Hayward, you can just run him off screen. So I think going smaller there, if they want to post up, if the Bucks want to post up Lopez, do that. I mean, that's a lower value than what they usually get shot quality wise. Put Horford on Giannis, try to wall him up. I think that's the way to attack this. Yeah, I agree with you. I would definitely start Gordon Hayward over Aaron Baines. Um, I would have Baines play a role. I would have Shimmy Ojale play a role. Like like I said, they just have so many different ways to attack what Milwaukee's going to do. The big question for me is, is Mike Budenholzer going to be willing to go with these Giannis at the five lineups earlier in the series than what you would think? Like, I, I think that they're going to have to at some point. Otherwise, Boston's going to figure it out. Um, do they go with these Giannis at the five lineups? And at what point do they go with Giannis at the five lineups? I think they probably end up doing it just because, I mean, Budenholzer is very receptive to stats and stuff like that. And if Boston takes a lot of jump shots, they're not a team. They didn't get to the rim that much, even against the Pacers, for example. A lot of that was Miles Turner. He was very good in that series. But they, they rely a lot on threes and getting those shots up. And that's what the Bucks defense gives up. If you can really stretch them out, I think it's going to force them to adjust eventually. And I don't want to make this seem like it's like Boston's 
is going to win the series necessarily. I think the Bucks are still obviously very good. They have their own advantage, their own advantages, and they have good personnel to combat. I mean, Bledsoe can guard Kyrie, get over the top of screens. I think having him is really valuable. Obviously, Giannis is the ultimate mismatch killer on both sides. And I, I think a key for me is just monitoring Horford's foul trouble. I think that's going to be crucial because if he's out, I think that changes the dimensions for the Celtics. Uh, you, you're going to lose something if you play anybody else. He's just kind of the fulcrum in many ways of the offense outside of Kyrie. If you lose him there, that's big. And Giannis is just the best at getting those like transition head of steam drives. And if Horford gets in foul trouble, I think that's going to be ultimately the undoing with the Celtics outside of the shot variance. Like, they need to make threes in this series. Is there anything else that stands out to you? I mean, the Bledsoe-Kyrie matchup is interesting to me. Uh, do we think that they throw anyone else other than Bledsoe on Kyrie? Um, I think you could see maybe Sterling Brown still minutes. We don't know what Brogdon's status is. Has right. it been confirmed that he's coming back? So that he would take Brown's spot, maybe in the starting lineup, maybe Budenholzer sticks with this synergy of late. But Brogdon obviously gives them more gravity as an off-ball shooter. So I, there's many different ways both of these teams could go. Like I don't know exactly who's going to guard who from Boston. Like is Tatum? Who's he going to guard necessarily? Who are they going to put on Middleton? Maybe that's Jalen Brown. They can do a lot of different things. That's what we're coming to these versatile teams now where they just have versatile personnel that can adjust. And that's kind of what makes it fascinating is because it's not like a predetermined team. It's not here's your strengths here. Here's your weaknesses. You can't adjust. It's like all of these teams have flexibility to throw different lineups on the floor. Yeah, I love it. Like I am legitimately very excited to see how all of this transpires just because while you said or while like I've kind of said that Milwaukee just kind of is what it is. They're not like you said. They have a lot of potentially really versatile, valuable pieces, right? They have a lot of ways to match up with opposing teams, right? Like you can throw even a like even a George Hill in this series, I think, is like useful for Milwaukee potentially, just because George Hill is a guy that you know you can throw in there and he can provide some length defensively and can just be an adult as a backup behind Eric Bledsoe. Especially the big deal is like if Brogdon doesn't play, obviously, like if Brogdon plays, then it doesn't really matter like you don't have to deal with george hill but like george hill is even like semi-useful i think yeah and that's the big difference to me outside of of course the schematic difference is getting lopez in from a floor spacing five standpoint it's like the milwaukee bucks their playoff depth this year is just much better than last year they're not dealing with jason terry and jabari parker as their two primary inputs off the bench both who aren't really playoff players at all this year, I mean, it's not like the talent is overwhelming as far as like a Sterling Brown, but like a Miritich has proved himself in the playoffs. You can adjust. They love getting spacing at, at, the, at the four and the five. I mean, part of this is because the Pistons couldn't take advantage of it, but playing Ursan next to Miritich, people were freaking out about that, but that just gives you optimal spacing. So several different ways both teams could go. I expect Stevens to kind of start Horford and go that way, but he, if not, he's going to adjust pretty quickly, and we'll see if Budenhoser will do the same. Yeah, and I mean, the other guy that I thought kind of was – you know, very, very useful for Milwaukee was Pat Connaughton in the yep. uh, in the Detroit series. Like, look, he only averaged like 10 points a night or whatever, but he made his shots. He provides like strength and defensive, like just character, right? Like he can just do a lot of random shit defensively uh, just because he's big and strong and semi-athletic. Yeah, I think he had like four blocks in one game just applying back pressure off picks. That's the thing about the Bucks is like they just executed a level that's next level. Like everybody knows their roles and they function really well in those. Like Conton knows exactly how to defend, you know, the over and drop. He has some length to apply back pressure, get blocks there. So everybody just executes what they're supposed to do. And 
what's curious for me is like, can Boston get them out of that? And that's kind of what makes the series so fascinating. Let's move on. Let's talk about the uh, impending, likely Rockets Warriors series. I mean, both these teams have to win games tonight. We're obviously recording at three o'clock Pacific time on Wednesday. Uh, I think that the Rockets game starts at five, right? So yes, maybe these teams don't win and we don't get to see the (laughs) greatest series in the second round that I can remember at least. But I am more excited for this series than any second round series than I can remember. Like I am just so fucking pumped to see these two teams match up against each other just because of the way that Houston is playing, right? Like Houston has been unbelievable in the second half of the season has been really good so far against Utah. Yeah. And this is kind of just an execution series, unless we do get like, we're, I don't think we're going to get the hardened plan from the Warriors. They're going to do what they do. They're going to switch. Iguodala is going to be involved more. I think you, you you're not going to see specific strategy, I don't think, to this level, like this far extreme. So that's kind of interesting. Is I think they're going to defend it kind of similar to last year. They don't have a reason anymore. So a little bit of a drop-off there, who's probably their best wing on ball defender. PJ is the better team defender, and like he defends a different kind of player. But uh, very, very interesting, of course, with the level that Harden's playing at. And that's the thing for me, is just what stars are going to execute at a higher level. The Warriors are going to run their stuff. Um, they're going to run their slips to counteract the rocket switching. And who's going to make shots? I mean, that was... Clearly a big theme in last year's series is just making open threes. Daniel House has got to make shots. Right now, he's one of those variant shooters where he's not really respected, and he hasn't made shots enough against the Jazz. Guys like that, I think, are going to be the margin for the Rockets. They've got to make their shots. Yeah, and when you're betting on guys like Daniel House as what? Like, let's say Daniel House is maybe their sixth most important guy, seventh most important guy, like... You're talking James Harden, P.J. Tucker, Clint Capella, Chris Paul, Eric Gordon. Like, realistically, their next guy that I think matters is Daniel House, right? Uh, yes. So you're you're betting on that guy versus basically Andre Iguodala. Uh, that's, that's, that's tough. It's a tough space to be in just because Andre is going to provide you with so much defensive versatility, and you know that uh, on a certain level, you have to win with either James Harden going supernova or you have to win – on the margins in terms of depth almost it like that's just how you beat like a top heavy team like the Warriors and I don't ah man I just don't see it like I still think the Warriors win this series me too just because it's gonna take just insane shot making efforts from Harden and Paul I think to do it and again the ancillary pieces hitting catch and shoot threes when they get the opportunities we know I think we know tactically what both teams are going to do. It's probably going to end up being downsized. We'll see if Capella gets played off the floor. That discussion we had about, you know, lob threats and not being able to space the floor. We'll probably see PJ Tucker at the five. So to me it's mostly just about who executes, who makes shots. And usually in those kinds of series, I'll bet on the Warriors because they have, you know, three all time shot makers. Well, two all time shot makers and three all time shooters. And you throw in Iguodal and Draymond Green, who are probably the smartest role players of their generation as far as like playmaking and decision making and all of that that's what makes the Warriors so unfair is like you can't replicate the shooting it's the IQ it's like all the slip cuts all all the reads that they make on the floor how to screen when to dive when to short roll all of that they just have it's it's very hard to beat that combination of high level intellect and high level skill well and you know, the other guy that's been awesome in the Clippers series so far is Kevon Looney. He's had just a really yes. underrated season, I think. Uh, Looney was a guy that really caused the Rockets some issues last year just because he's long. And I don't want to say, like, you know, you feel comfortable with him against James Harden on an island, but he's at least not going to get, like, 
demolished like a lot of defenders do when he's on an island with James Harden, right? So you have all of these different guys, and I just wonder if this is... So this is the series where I was concerned about them potentially overplaying DeMarcus Cousins, right? Uh, About them potentially trying to use him as like this matchup guy that, you know, tries to get back more on offense than he gives away on defense. He was going to give away a lot on defense in the series. And yes, I just wonder if not having him realistically, just when you have DeMarcus Cousins, you have to play him 20 minutes at least. Not having him is going to help them just match up a little bit better. Yeah, I agree. Because, I mean, they're just going to run, pick, and roll at him every time with Harden. And that's probably going to outweigh whatever Cousins gives on the other end. So I think in this series, especially, Looney's going to play big. I expect him to start. We'll see some Jordan Bell, but Bell hasn't hung that well with Harden on switches. I just don't think he's quite big enough, quite long enough. You really have to have so many different qualifications to guard James Harden. And it starts with a kind of like length and strength. And, of course, you have to be able to move well enough to stay at least somewhat with him when he hits you with those hesitation moves and whatnot. So I do expect Looney to probably switch on to him a, at least a little bit and we'll kind of see how he holds up that's going to be a big part of the series but i don't see looney like stopping harden from getting to a step back it's just going to be the shot variance it's just hard to have a damian lillard type pull-up series where he just hits everything or is he off do we get you know that wacky ass game three against utah or something or whatever game four i can't remember what it was <laughs> it was three yeah where he missed all the shots yeah. and he still won anyway um bogut has been weirdly useful for them too in a way that I did not anticipate. Um, I, I did not think that he could play at this level anymore, and he kind of can. So just even getting like 10 minutes from him might be valuable. Yeah, you can give him spot minutes. I think that I would still start Looney over him in this I series. I agree 100%. Again, another, yeah. another drop big. But yeah, I think he probably gets in the rotation at some point in certain matchups. We'll kind of see. But I, I do expect the Rockets will go smaller when they can, and that's going to necessitate the Warriors reacting. We'll get definitely Dre at the five paramount maybe kd at the five like we've seen in the finals for example so it's going to be one of those series where the versatility of the warriors front court swinging to the five spot that's going to be on full display yeah i do think that we're going to get more death lineup in the series than maybe we've seen all year from the warriors just because it's a series where for the love of god they're actually going to have to use it like they are actually going to have to get real tangible contributions um from like Draymond Green at the five. They're going to have to play small. They're going to have to play mobile defensively. Uh, I mean, there's not a better lineup in basketball still, in my opinion, than Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, Andre Iguodala, Kevin Durant, and Draymond Green. You have Kevin Durant to protect the weak side of the rim. You have Draymond, who's so good with verticality, still even protecting the strong side of the rim. Like there's just, it's just so, so ridiculous what they can throw at you. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think we'll see more of KD's shot making. Everybody wants to give KD shit because he takes some bad shots. But when the Rockets switch everything, sometimes you just need guys who can make shots off the dribble. And you just can't take KD away. You can try to press into his legs like the Clippers have tried to with Beverly. But he can just shoot right over the top. And guys like that are just really hard to take away. And you usually need that kind of shot making to win at this level. So I think KD's isolation scoring, we're going to see some of that. Probably to, you know, Warriors fans not being super pleased because sometimes Steph will get faded out a little bit. But the Warriors offense can bog down a little bit when you really do switch everything. We saw that last year and it's going to come down to a lot of shot making. But again, Warriors are very much, you know, adept at shot making, you know, from three especially. So it's going to be fascinating. I would be I would still take the Warriors probably in six or so. You could give me Warriors in five even. But like, I think I'm going to go six right now. I think it's six, to be honest. Uh, I do I do think it's six is the number that I'm going to go with. Uh, let's talk about, real quick, 
Raptors Sixers. Uh, you have kind of a strong take on this series, and I just want to give you the floor to be able to provide your strong take. Yeah, I think the Sixers are really good. I think they're clearly the fourth best team in the East, but I think the top three teams in the East are more closely linked than the Sixers. I think they're kind of a step down from Boston. They're a step down from Toronto, and I just think Toronto is really fucking good. And we're going to see... I just think they match up really, really well with the Sixers. Like, so much of what the Sixers want to do. The Gasol trade is so underrated. Masai getting that trade. I mean, Kawhi obviously was the difference maker. But having Gasol, who can guard and beat in the post, we saw what Gasol did in the first round of Vucevic. And they're not the same players, of course, but Gasol's awesome in the post. His hands are fantastic. He's so smart. They at least have a body to put on Embiid. And if you can guard Embiid in the post and you can kind of keep him away from these bullshit fouls and make him make tough shots in the mid-range area over the top in the post, I think that's huge because you don't have to double that alter scheme. And then on the other end, Gasol's just going to space the floor the entire time. Like he doesn't even really post up for them. He just is kind of like a pick and pop five, a face up five. That's going to stress Embiid to an extent. I, I like that for them. And then you look at all the other individual matchups, like Kawhi Leonard's probably going to guard Simmons. Having that length and strength on Simmons in the half court I think it's going to do a number on him and they're, they're so versatile like Lowry can chase JJ Redick that's probably what I expect him to do they have Siakam on Tobias Harris I think that's an advantage Siakam I think he's just a better player and the length and the mobility is going to impact and then Danny Green they can put on Jimmy Butler and they switch a lot one through four so we're going to see you know guys go in and out of switching and different matchups and stuff like that. I just think it's going to be hard for Philly to score. And I do think that Toronto has advantages on the other side of the floor. I think they have better pull-up shooting. And I think that you're going to see the spacing difference with these two teams. Just Sixers are a very unique team. They beat the shit out of the Nets physically. Like they are a lot bigger and they imposed their will as the series went on. The Nets were always incurring some kind of trade-off. So they'd play Dudley at the five for spacing reasons because Ronda Hollis Jefferson is basically a center. So if you play him at the four, then people are just going to help off him. And like Toronto can have that size and they can also maintain their defensive integrity. So I like Toronto in five. Um, I, I just think the talent difference, maybe, maybe not the overall star talent is that different, but how they fit together is a big difference for me. And Toronto can really stress you in different ways. Yeah, I think that the big thing is the Marcus All addition. It almost feels like that addition was specifically for a potential series against the Sixers, right? Because it does. he is just kind of a combo breaker for what Joel Embiid is. Like he can actually guard Joel in the post and he can stretch him out. Like you probably don't want Serge Ibaka spending a ton of time on Joel Embiid, but as a backup option to throw on Joel Embiid, that's a super valuable backup option. <laughs> like he is, Serge Ibaka is another guy that's going to space the floor and stretch you out with Joel. And he's at least, I mean, he's still skinny, but like he's bigger than he used to be and is like capable of banging inside with Joel Embiid, at least due to his length and due to his athleticism, uh, as much of it is still there at least. So man, it's just hard for me to see how Joel has as good of a series in this series as he did against Brooklyn. And then you throw in the perimeter defenders, like you said. See, like, I haven't quite figured out what I would do yet if I was Toronto. Because you said you'd put Kawhi on Ben. I think I would put Kawhi on Jimmy and put Pascal on Ben. Because I think Pascal is just a little bit bigger than Kawhi, uh, a little bit stronger. And I think that he can put up a little bit better with Ben just trying to like relentlessly attack and get through guys going toward the basket. You know what I mean? 
I think you'll definitely see both. I actually think Kawhi yeah. is a little bit stronger than Siakam. Just he's just built Dude. a little bit more sturdy. Yeah, I, I I think it's pretty close. I think both of them have different advantages. I initially thought as you did because I thought maybe and I thought even Kawhi might take an ancillary guy, not necessarily either Jimmy or Ben, just to preserve him a little bit offensively. And again, the Raptors are going to switch a lot of this, so they're not going to be the same matchups every time. But I, I'm really curious to see Kawhi's strength on Ben. I, I think Ben turned the ball over like over six times a game in the regular season against the Raptors. And I think that Kawhi did a number on him with his length and his strength. And that's going to be just a really fascinating matchup because everybody wants to note M- or Simmons in the half court. How can he score against these elite offenses This is or elite defenses? This is another example of that. Maybe it's not the exact same personnel as like Boston last year because Horford's more versatile than Gasol, so there might be more opportunities to attack in certain matchups if you get, I don't know, Gasol in space, you get Simmons going downhill for like a fake dribble handoff or something. So there's areas to attack. But I do think overall, just the the way that Toronto fits together, and specifically this matchup, with Gasol especially, like what you don't want to do is have to double Embiid and like suck the defense in. Yep. And I think Gasol can guard him straight up. If Embiid's going to make his shots, let him make the shots. Just don't foul him. And maybe sometimes you opportunistically double and try to force turnovers. But for the most part, you just want to be able to single coverage him inside. And I don't think Sixers can beat the Raptors that way. Yeah, I think that I agree with you there. Um, The Sixers are a great team. Like, I think they're probably, I would even go a step further and say, like, they're one of maybe the six best teams in the entire league. Like, I I trust them over Portland. I trust them over Denver, um, basically over everyone in the West other than Golden State and Houston. But I just think this is a terrible, terrible matchup for them. Like, this this Raptors team is specifically engineered to cause issues for Philadelphia. Yeah, I agree on talent level, too. I think the Sixers are that caliber of team it's just for me there's a there's still a jump up when you come to another level of team with the personnel the raptors have and and then the matchups just make it tilt even more towards the raptors yeah and you know like even philadelphia at times it felt like dealt with something of a math problem against um against brooklyn right toronto's gonna shoot like a high number of threes if they get the opportunity like i feel like that math problem is just going to continue to arise at the end of the day uh and then you throw in that it's a tough matchup like i, I just don't know that i love it well yeah and the raptors gonna be able to hunt reddick a little bit so they're probably gonna have to put him on danny green we saw some one two pick and roll with larry and danny green it's gonna work the opposite way this time i think they're gonna try to get larry onto reddick and i think larry can get by him and they know that sixers don't want to switch reddick so they're going to run pick and rolls at him knowing it's going to be a hard edge and that gives you an opportunity to slip. There's just different little dynamics at play. And that just happens when you have a place to attack on the defensive end. Like teams, the best teams are going to go after Redick really hard. And there's not that place to attack the Raptors really. You can attack him in pick and roll with dynamic downhill guards and with Gasol's kind of like soft hedge or you know, a little bit of a drop coverage. But that's what the Sixers lack. They lack that dynamic point guard, right? They don't have Damian Lillard. What they do is they generate spacing via Redick and like dribble handoffs. And that's just a different animal because Lowry can stick with, you know, JJ around screens. And that's kind of fits into the personnel the Raptors have switching things. And then do the Sixers have the isolation players? Like I think Jimmy Butler is the biggest X factor in this series. Can he make shots off the dribble? We know yeah. Kawhi can. Like, can. Can Butler pull up from three? Can he initiate? Because that's why I've always been a fan of Butler on the Sixers. Like, at the end of the games, like, who's getting shots for you? Like, Tobias Harris can, but he's not creating for other guys. He can run a pick and roll and pull up, but he's not making decisions. And Butler needs to be aggressive with his shots. He needs to actually take pull-up threes. I think he's the guy. Like, if he has a great series, 
I could probably see six games, but if he doesn't, it's just going to be really tough for them. All right. Do you want to do you want to get into some draft hot takes here? Let's do it. Okay. So I think the number is like 233 guys have declared for the draft. And to be honest, like it feels like more players at this stage are declaring with the intent to go through the entire draft process than we've seen in the past. Like borderline-ish guys like Kyle Guy, like Jordan Poole. Um, you know, there are others out there that are doing this. I mean, what, what do we think of this right now just having to parse through all of these players as they uh you know are eligible for this process i always try to wait as long as possible to really gauge the overall depth because people are going to make other decisions i guess for the the listeners you probably explain this on the podcast but do you want to explain like the new format for everyone as far as like these guys declaring what that means so yeah they can declare for the draft it's the same as it used to be just you have up until 10 days before the end of the combine or uh, I'm sorry, 10 days after the end of the combine. So the the date this year is May 29th. Uh, you have until then to essentially withdraw your name from the draft. The yeah. addition this year is that players can work with agents, can be advised by agents. Uh, they just cannot take funding from agents for training, for housing, for you know anything like that, right? So you... You can be advised by an agent, but you and you can sign with an agent, but you cannot actually accept any sort of money from the agent. So it's a bit of a different process in the way that players are declaring. They're declaring, you know, saying that they're signing an agent, but there's not really clarity on what their goal is unless they actually say, hey, I am declaring with the intent to keep my name in the draft or I will be keeping my name in the draft or in Jordan Poole's case, you start selling your likeness on cameo. Uh, that was a very strange way to declare that he was staying in the draft, but it is a slightly different process that is at the end of the day, working pretty similarly. It's just that more kids than ever, I think are declaring for a multitude of reasons. I think one is that, you know, you get actual advice, you get a chance yep. to, um, you know, work with an agent, which is valuable. Uh, I do think that the tide of amateurism is playing a role in this. The fact that <clears throat> amateurism is becoming this uh, negative, negatively connotated word, which is good in my opinion. Um, these players should be paid. They should get what they're worth. In a lot of cases, like that might be $40,000. Other cases, it might be $5 million. Like it, There's a large range there. And if they want to go get paid and get what they're worth, that's great. The final thing is, though, that I think that the number one reason that guys are declaring is that there is so much uncertainty in this draft once you get beyond. Oh, man. I mean, what's the number for you? Like, <laughs> um, one, no. <laughs> yeah, like one and then three even. Like, I, I would say once you get beyond, I, I would say that there are 18 guys right now that I think are like surefire first round picks. Yeah, that seems a little low historically. Like, I think last year I even had like 27, and usually I'm pretty, I don't know, like I, I'm pretty hardline on those guys too. So, I mean, I should give you 
I guess, listener is an, a contextual example of what the talent level is this year. And, of course, we'll see who ends up staying in. I think the process of finding out information, like, players should do that. They should figure out how the NBA views them because that's ultimately the most important thing. It's not, like, what the media writes necessarily or what how they're perceived that way. It's, like, what the NBA guys think of them, where their value range is going to be. And, I, I mean, the guard play this year, I, I think Kobe White made a smart decision coming out just with the lack of guard depth. I mean, him and Darius Garland are going to get pushed up the board. I mean, I'd be surprised if Garland fell out of the top five now. And I, I think guys like that, they should take advantage of their opportunity. And it makes sense that they would you know, hold out for more information because if they can slip into the end of the first round, I think you do that. I had no idea about Jordan Poole, by the way. That's really curious. Yeah, so Jordan Poole is like definitely going. I guess that there was some disappointment in like his role in the offense. Like he wanted to run more ball screen actions. Like he wanted to maybe be a more integral piece of the offense. Um, I, I think that I would have, I'm sorry, I think I would have 19 guys right now as like guys I would consider surefire first round picks. Uh, I think that Goja is probably a guy that I would consider a surefire first round pick as well. Yeah, and I definitely would with him too. He's he's probably even he. I think he's probably definitely lottery for me, honestly. But uh, I can yeah, I, 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 I can't go that far. That. <laughs> <laughs> I usually formulate the list when we find out for sure about guys and after the combine or whatnot. And you, we still have that combine. That's an integral part to this too, seeing all the measurements, and we'll see some of the five on five play. I, I do factor that into the analysis. I think it's important to view how a player. We've talked about this on past podcasts. Like if a player improves their mechanics. If we, if we get any kind of sense that they've worked on their game, do they show up in better shape like Wendell Carter did last year? That was big. So I, we're still at the a point where there's still analysis. There's crucial nuggets coming in. So usually I'll get to that list probably you know early June to really narrow down on guys that might have his first round talents, for example. Yeah, like I have a big list of 100 names here that I published on April 4th. And I mean, it's just a mess already. Like, I don't feel great about the list of names that I published. Like, I don't feel great. Like, you know, a lot of guys have obviously decided not to declare to like Ashton Hagens and Trey Jones. And I don't think Halliburton is on the list. Like, I don't, I know that Io DeSunmu and Jalen Smith aren't on the early entry list. So like, there, there are just so many guys that you're going to have to parse through this year and figure out, okay, is this someone that I need to take seriously? Like Jalen Horde decided that he's like a hundred percent going through the process. So like, I have to take a very critical look at Jalen Horde. Now I have to take a very critical look at uh, Jordan Wara is not definitely going through, but like Jordan Wara is like a decision guy. Like what should he do? Um, it's just a, it's a tough year. It's a very, very difficult year to parse through names. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just challenging. Like what, what the, should the player do? Cause there's like two different hands. That's one. It's like, a right. ethical, like, should the player, should the player get paid? Yeah. I'm all for that. Of course. But do I want players to, to succeed coming into the league? Actually, absolutely. And they're not all ready for that. Like, I'm a little worried about someone like Taylor Horton Tucker, who doesn't have a defined NBA skill right now. Like I like a lot of things about him. I like his touch. Um, but he didn't shoot the ball well at all. He's not like this crazy uber athlete. I'm not like in love with his space defense. And I think he he's like an actually kind of bad defender, to be honest. That's fair. And I think he makes bad decisions. I mean, he was benched on the, the last two games of his season. And like Halliburton was in there as a freshman. And Halliburton's, of course, a much smarter player than most every freshman. <laughs> but I think Horton Tucker has real concerns. And like, do you want to come into the league and, you know, be drafted 22nd? And you don't develop the right way. Like there is value in staying in college to develop certain things. And I, but at the same time, I want him to get paid. So it's a different dilemma when you weigh those two things. I've gotten a lot of different feedback as far as what people think Horton Tucker should do. Should he come out, you know, develop in the pros when he's not going to be this high pedigree guy? I mean, if you invest a top 
five or top ten pick in someone, you're going to get multiple shots at the apple if you're a player. Like teams are not going to give up on you. If you're like a late first, if you're like a even like a pick twenty, you don't have that same margin for error. I don't know what the hell Taylor Horton Tucker should do. Um, cause like, I, I'm not yeah. as high on him. Like I have him at like, you know, 35 to 40, like something in that range. Like, honestly, if it was me, I would say like, he should go back, but I do understand that like, there are a lot of NBA teams that are interested and I think they're interested for the wrong reasons. Uh, they're interested in what he is in theory versus what he is in practice. Yeah, exactly right. And then you have to add to that dynamic, too. If he comes back, what if he doesn't shoot the ball well again next year and he gets picked apart? Like Daniel Gafford was going to be a lottery pick maybe last year. This year, he comes back, doesn't really improve dynamically in any one fashion, gets featured more in the post. We realize he's not very good in that role, which we already kind of knew. He's more of just a, yeah. a straight dive man. And now he's probably going, I mean, you know better than me, probably outside the top 25, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's about right. Like probably I think there's a chance he goes in the first round. I think there's a real chance he goes in the first round. Um yeah. but it'll be like bottom third of the first round if he goes there and there's a real chance he falls to the second. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's just goes to some of the fringe first round guys and some of the fringy prospects that you can't really nail down an immediate role for. Like if you can play right away, you have a better chance of entrenching yourself in the NBA. Like the NBA moves on fast. And for a lot of these guys, you just have to make really complicated decisions because you don't want to come back to school. My, my general rule is if you're going to be a first-round pick, come out because you get the guaranteed money and you at least get a shot. But if you're like yep. a more fringy second-round guy, it's like, well, if you come out, you could be in Europe in a year. And like, there's just no, there's just very, very small margin for error there. Honestly, I think it's even top 40 for me at this stage just because down to about 50 now, realistically – guys are getting guaranteed contracts because these second round picks are just so valuable. Um, if you hit on a second yep. round pick, it's just worth getting the team control on it. Um, so these guys are getting guaranteed picks now, which I think is just makes it a bit of a different ball game. Um, but if you're in that like potential zone where you're a two way guy like that, that's where it gets dangerous. Like you're talking like Charlie Brown at St. Joe's. Like I'm very interested in Charlie Brown's skill set. He's six, six with a seven foot wingspan. He can create his own shot. He can actually shoot the ball, but there's a lot of problems there. Like there's a, he's not a good defender. You know, that team fell apart basically this season, uh, while he was the main guy like what happened there or if you're Nemius Keita at Utah State like Nemius Keita is not ready to play in an NBA game right now um does an NBA team give him a guaranteed deal like I I don't know because he's a big like what is the value in giving a big man who can't play for you immediately a guaranteed deal like you might just have to move on at a certain stage because they're just so copious like the Lakers shouldn't have moved on from both Thomas Bryant and Avica Zubak but they always were going to have to move on from one of them just because that's the way that this works now there are just so many bigs to go around yeah the position comes into play for sure as far as opportunity and yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's overall, it's it's a really complicated decision. There's a reason that it takes these guys, you know, a little bit to make it. Some of the fringe guys getting the best feedback, and I would just do honestly what the NBA tells you to do. Like, if they're like, we're not going to take you in the first round, we might. I don't know how direct the information is and how direct the feedback is from like different panels with the NBA guys or what. I'm I'm guessing they're pretty honest about like their general range. And usually, you see at the draft time, guys fall into expected ranges, even if. I don't agree with them in the draft as far as how guys are tiered by NBA executives and such. Like you want to listen to that feedback if you're a prospect, because ultimately, again, that's what matters. 
So it's weird because the NBA itself will give you feedback, but you're obviously getting feedback from NBA teams too. And NBA teams might tell you, hey, like, you know, we're the team that's highest on you. Uh, You know, ultimately we're the team that matters. Stay in the draft and, you know, we'll pick you. And then sometimes that ends up not being accurate, right? Like sometimes they just don't select you because a guy that they don't expect to fall ends up falling to their pick miraculously. And it's that situation, right? So the NBA is more of like a, hey, this is what like the mean outcome of where teams are on you or like where we think you would be picked. But ultimately the mean isn't necessarily the best way of going about it all the time because it is like a true one team who loves you and like they are the team that thinks like you are the beauty in the eye of the beholder they can pick you and like your decision can end up being great you know like you can go you you can be a mean guy that is you know 45 like honestly pascal siakam is a great example of this because pascal siakam like i would say that most teams had him as a second round pick like as a solid second round pick that was probably like in the 40 to 50 range. Toronto takes him at 28 and it looks like a great decision to come out. Now he's a star. So like it's it's such a complicated deal. Yeah, and it can go both ways. And again, very for small sure, margin for when you get when you get more cuz like the, the higher level guys, the pedigree guys, almost all of those guys get real shots at some point and they're going to get multiple shots. But the lower level guys don't necessarily always get a shot in general. Like I agree with you about like the top of the second round, we do see more like three-year contracts guaranteed not necessarily as high as the first round salary but like a legitimate salary greater than the minimum so they are getting some incentive there to lock in longer because teams want to cost control those picks because that's what makes them valuable like if a second rounder hits and you have them for three or four years at that kind of salary that's where you get the surplus value with the draft selection but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to develop the right way like look at elia kobo and phoenix like if they get another point guard um is he going to have the requisite you know developmental leeway you'd see a lot of point guards go in that range like graham javon carter are they going to get the opportunity to really fully earn that or are they going to be kind of played out by better options so it's a really convoluted process but then like in elia kobo's case like elia kobo got what three million dollars essentially to sign with phoenix like that's real money that's more than he would have gotten paid by his French league team by a significant margin. So like, is, is that worth it to him? Even though he doesn't get the chance, like it's, it's, there are so many factors that go into play with these kids. Like it's, it's not an easy process. And I would just relax on the hot takes that, uh, you know, guys shouldn't declare, at least put their name in because uh, look, at the end of the day, you should get all the information you can. Yeah. And I mean, if you're, incentives are financial if if, at least partly driven if you're like i need the money now then do it like if that's your choice i support whatever players said to do i'm just literally when i when i say people should go back to school it's just i don't know if you're ready to play at this level and carve out a role like that's what i'm concerned about is guys coming into the league and not being given the requisite time in the development like not a lot of teams are going to spend you know three years developing a second round pick you know what I mean? They're going to be like, okay, it's not working out after year one. Like, we're going to look to move on and fill that role with someone else. So that's kind of what you, you have to weigh in the cost-benefit analysis. Like, yes, it is a three-year guaranteed salary. But if you stayed in school for an extra two years and you came out and you're a top-20 pick, you get a four-year contract or what's called two guaranteed years, and then you're better. Then you can improve and maybe get a better second contract. So it's like people that, that want to dismiss this as some kind of simplistic process. It's definitely not because you have different interests at play. All right, Cole. With you being back on the podcast now, I want one face-melting hot take about this NBA draft. 
That's all I want. I want one just to get you back in it. <laughs> I think Brandon Clark's my number two guy. That's a face melting I... hot take. I'm here for it. Yeah, I, I'm i not like totally surefire on it. Like I have a tier right now of like a mini tier of like four or five guys I would have in that range. So it does, I guess it does deviate a little bit based on trade value, based on that shit. But I just think Brandon Clark's the second best basketball player in this class. And I think he's versatile enough to hold up in the playoffs. And I've always said, last time we talked about this, I think his touch is underrated. I, I would love to, to hear how he shoots in private workouts and how he shoots NBA threes. So that would be really critical information to this calculus. But if I'm just looking at all-around player who I think can add value to winning in a playoff setting, I think I would have Clark two. Not that I would take him two. That's be very clear. Like I wouldn't draft a number two because you don't have to. But that's kind of how I'm approaching it. I just think he's the second best basketball player in the class. So can he play in the playoffs? If he can't shoot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can play him as the play finisher. He can be the small ball five because I think he can switch. But yeah, I mean, it, it would help a lot if he could because. When you can't shoot in the playoffs, you have to be in very specific settings. So I get the risk. There's definitely a risk there. But I, I think there's untapped upside. And I just look at him, and I like the floor value to value with his defense. I think that just gives him a ton of safety. And I think if he does shoot, he can score better than he gets credit for it. Like, he's getting lumped in with a, like a guy like Jordan Bell. and He's just much better than Jordan Bell. Oh, yeah, everything. his like, instincts better... are, yeah, just, like, not even debatable, not even close. Well, his touch is much better. Like, he can actually score. Like, he can spin move you, shoot over the top. Like, his finishing numbers are absolutely, like, they're historically elite. They're, like, behind only Zion as far as finishing around the rim. And Clark shoots a lot of runners. Like, he's he's is pretty well established in his ability to score from that area. So I like him in that center of the court play finisher role. But, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a risk. I, I can't sit here and say I have, like, really strong leans in this class. Like, last year I felt very strongly about, you know, four or five guys this year it's like uh, i don't really feel great about anybody but zion like there's downside to pretty much anyone across the board yeah like brandon clark is good i am i am a big brandon clark fan i think i wrote like the first hey brandon clark is going to be a first round pick story (laughs) right like i am a big brandon clark guy um i i do really worry about the jump shot uh, and like what his ceiling sure. is if he can't shoot, because I don't know what the because like is the finishing going to be this elite if you're playing him at center because he can't shoot and because like because then you have him going up against like true rim protectors more often like you're going to have him going up against Rudy Gobert and Stephen Adams and these guys that outweigh him by thirty pounds and outlength him by four inches in height and seven inches in wingspan because he has like a six nine wingspan so like i mean i i just don't i i'm unconvinced that his offense <laughs> translates as well as um what i hope it does like i i am rooting for that kid like i want that kid to succeed at the highest level because he is he's special like he is an incredibly kind kid uh respectful super emotionally intelligent very mature yep. but I just worry that I, I just really worry about the offense. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I think there's definitely areas for concern. I'm just genuinely intrigued by him because when I can't find like I identify certain skills that are valuable to me and that's how I kind of approach it, approach yeah. the gr- draft. And in this class, there's just not enough of those guys to where I think, oh, this guy does this. And I think it's going to be really good in that. Like, I don't trust Darius. I just don't I don't think Darius Garland is going to be Damian Lillard. And I think the margin of error is really small. So that's why I don't value his pull up shooting as much as other people do. But like with Clark, I'm just very intrigued because he has elite instincts. He's super smart. And I just think his offensive game, I mean, he has to shoot. 
to have like that peak value. But I think his offensive game, his ability to score and like siphon off points within the offense, make the right decisions and just be a smart player. I, I, I'll bet on someone like that just because I know I have the safety with the defense. So we've got um, John Moran at number two for most teams and most uh, yep. evaluators, realistically. Uh, I am at that stage now, and I think the big thing is we talked a little bit earlier about how James Harden can only throw the whip pass to the corner left-handed, uh, and he really is fucking elite at it. Ja can do that stuff with both hands, one-handed from every angle, and I think that that is the big differentiator with him as a lead guard prospect. Like, the fact that he can keep a dribble live as an elite-level ball handler, has great quickness, and can throw these just whip passes all over the court, like, that's going to be a translatable deal, I think, basically immediately. Yeah, I mean, he's left-hand dominant almost. He actually prefers to pass left. Definitely. So he does. has that diversity. So, like, he has the diversity. I'm not worried about his passing. Like, his decision-making leaves a lot to be desired at times. He'll try to force lobs. I don't think he processes the game, like, as quickly as a Trey Young in, in like, a pick-and-roll yeah, setting. I, so, but the passing craft and the vision are fantastic. Like, I, there's a reason Morant is justifiably a number two guy in this class. Like, I don't have any qualms with that. I just don't believe in the dynamic shooting ability. And, like, he did show some in the tournament as far as on under coverages. When his feeder said he's actually got a pretty good shot, it's, I, I don't yeah. lo- love the mechanics. It's, it's lower. But, like, he did have a couple step backs that were pretty intriguing. But he doesn't have that dynamic pull-up game where I think it's going to translate to, like, an isolation setting where he can get a shot off in diverse ways. I don't think his shot's quite as functional as some of the other elite shooters to come into the league. Like, he's not shooting a lot with backward momentum. He's more of a forward momentum guy. He doesn't have, like, that lightning-quick Trey Young release. So I think there's going to be some issues scoring in traffic. It was really fascinating. The Florida State game was just, I I thought it was an awesome projection game. Probably the best of the year for anyone. Because you saw so many ways that he was utilized in pick and roll. And like the coverages Florida State. So they started out ducking under. He shot those deep threes. They moved the screen down to the three-point line. So he still hit the pull-up threes. He got a switch, shot over the top, hit that pull-up three. And they were like, screw it. We're going to over and drop you. And we're going to make you score in the intermediate area. And he was like 2 of 15 from two-point range. And I yep. think the lack of strength when he gets into the, the paint is a little bit of an issue finishing at the rim. I don't think his touch is bad. I don't think his touch is great. Like, Trey Young has that runner. I don't think Morant has that in his game. And so how is he going to score on these over-and-drop coverages? He's going to be strong enough around the rim. But I get the upside. If it all works out, like, he's like he has an initiator mind. Like, he can create for himself and his teammates. The issue for me is can he create efficiently enough for himself to where his creation for his teammates becomes super valuable? Yeah, like I think there's a chance he is Eric Bledsoe as a scorer and like throwing in just like super elite passing ability, which is valuable. But not, like that's that's a great player. But continue. No, I was gonna say, but not as a defender, right? Like we're not as a defender. Yeah, like I mean, offensively. <laughs> yeah. Like Eric has yes. the super length, has the super strength. Honestly, like that dude is just a fucking bull. But it takes Eric some time to load up. Like you're not talking about a guy that is like dynamic taking like sidestep step backs not taking um like he needs to have his feet set to knock down shots i think that's what you're looking at um it's like if you almost combine like rajon rondo and eric bledsoe's like offensive skill set to me yeah i think that's fair honestly that's a really good one the part that kind of sucks about moran is like there's nobody to really compare him to directly like he's such a weird mix of skills and you don't have any defensive safety either because i just don't think for how much i want to say like yeah the role and his high usage it's just some of the defensive instincts off the ball and like the effort level is kind of i mean he does get in the passing lanes at times with his length but i think i've seen enough negative to where guys like that almost never play defense at a great level at the nba level so there's no like safety there either yeah no i agree with you um 
Cole, are you excited for this weekend? We've got Game of Thrones. We've got Avengers. We've got um, NBA second round of the playoffs. Like, this is going to be a great weekend. I'm excited. We've got Anzac Day football tonight. Essendon. Let's go Essendon. That's that's where we're at in life. Yeah, it's one hell of a weekend. I probably won't even get to see Avengers. My, my friends are already going to that. I, I don't know if I'll be able to, but I'll definitely see it eventually. It's just a monster weekend because we get the, the Battle of Winterfell, so I'm going to be definitely tuning in live for that one. Yeah, like tomorrow night, uh, I will be I will be at Avengers. You know, basketball's great, but I will be <laughs> at Avengers, like no question in my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Cole, tell the people what's going on with you, even though you did that earlier on in this episode. But like, tell tell them where they can find your work going forward here. So as usual on the step in, I will continue to write there, and I'll probably have some articles coming out. I want to say early next week. I kind of have a couple work in progress right now i'm getting back into the writing game a little rusty obviously a little rusty on the podcast but we'll probably make more appearances here and uh as always continue to listen to this podcast go subscribe or you don't have to subscribe to the Stepian. go read that go subscribe to the athletic keep me employed i wrote a 2020 mock draft uh yesterday i have a feature coming on scotty lewis within that 2020 class tomorrow, probably uh, Thursday. And then I'll have a mock draft. I would say realistically by the end of the month is probably a fair assessment for that. And then I have a couple other things I'm working on. So go to The Athletic. It's my time of year to like really just do way too much. Plus I'm planning a wedding. So like my life is uh, a lot going on right now. So uh, until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.